Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two clones. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate puzzle. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next up, we've got Tarun, the Giga Brain and Grand Poobah at Gauntlet. Uh, joining us today, we have Laura, the CEO of the show. And finally, myself, I'm Asib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. Um, so we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Okay, so for those of you who somehow have not followed this story, we left off last week. Uh, I think Tuesday, we, we recorded this emergency episode. Um, on last Tuesday, we were, we were sort of on this cliffhanger when CZ had announced that he was going to acquire uh, FTX, although he just submitted an LOI, meaning that it was a non-binding um, letter of intent to decide whether or not they, after they do due diligence, whether they were going to acquire FTX. And on the last show, we were basically anticipating there was a high likelihood that CZ was going to walk away from the deal. So that was Tuesday. Wednesday, CZ announces that CZ is walking away. Binance cannot take over the liabilities. The, the balance sheet is too much of a mess. Sam then announces that he is going to still seek emergency financing. He kind of softly blames CZ, claiming that CZ was never going to buy anything. Um, he announced that FTX US is fine. The problem is on FTX International. Uh, but FTX US is totally okay. And uh, he, he says that the balance sheets are totally separated. On the same day, the SEC announces that for the first time, they are going to be investigating FTX. Uh, into misappropriation of customer funds. Uh, they were, there was already an outstanding investigation into some of their earned products, but now it's it's starting to look like it's potentially a criminal probe. So that's Wednesday. Everybody is kind of standing on pins and needles. The assumption at that point is that probably FTX is not going to be able to raise funding, but nobody knows that the, the complete details quite yet. Thursday, last week, withdrawals on FTX are completely frozen, but it's announced that Bahamian citizens are allowed to withdraw from FTX. Uh, FTX claims that this was under the order of the Bahamian SEC. The Bahamian SEC, by the way, later, as of this weekend, denied that this was ever an instruction given to FTX. But the only withdrawals that are now coming out of FTX Global are to Bahamian citizens. There ends up being an absolute circus where um, multiple things happen in the same day. One, Justin Sun announces a credit facility that he's going to allow Tron and Tron ecosystem tokens to be withdrawable from FTX. And then only Bahamian citizens and Tron tokens can be withdrawn. Uh, and and NFTs. And so what, hap what happens is that on Twitter, there are all sorts of crazy black market transactions where people are faking Bahamian KYC or engaging into OTC deals with Bahamian users to basically use Bahamian KYC to withdraw out of FTX, uh, which is obviously very illegal. And all of this is, is happening out in the open on Twitter. Uh, Sam was purportedly still in the Bahamas when all this happened, but basically the whole team quit around this time. And so FTX just kind of becomes an absolute circus. Friday, finally, FTX files for bankruptcy. And when FTX files for bankruptcy, it's not just FTX International. 
which is where the damage was originally done. But every single subsidiary of FTX, including FTX US, including Blockfolio uh, and Ledger X, all file for bankruptcy simultaneously. Sam resigns as CEO and he brings in John Ray, who was the liquidator for Enron, to be the liquidator for the FTX bankruptcy. People thought at this point, okay, it's over. It, finally, FTX has come to rest. The whole thing is going to be unwound and we're going to learn what really happened. And then Friday night, a massacre, it turns out that FTX starts moving funds again. And people are like, wow, what, what is the liquidator doing at FTX at you know 10 p.m. on a Friday night? Well, what ended up happening was that the, the, the cold wallets for FTX were hacked. And hundreds of millions of dollars of FTX assets, particularly in lots and lots of altcoins, started getting sold through DeFi. We should, we should be careful about calling it a hack or not. It could have just been an insider, and we don't actually fully know. Right. True. Okay. We, we so just know the funds moved. The funds moved somehow. We know that they were unauthorized. Yes, there's some, some, some type of unauthorized access. We don't know yet who this was or, or how they were connected to FTX. Um, and at the same time, soon after this started taking place, people noticed that the hacker uh, or the attacker, quote unquote, um, started uh, moving funds to two different addresses. And over time, it becomes clear that actually these two different addresses are somebody who has two people who have control over the same address fighting for control and siphoning assets away from control of the attacker. And so about 200, there was about 600 million uh, worth of assets that were under contest and about 300 million of it was successfully siphoned away by the attacker. Uh, the other 300 million was either uh, protected by the FTX team or frozen. Uh, a, a huge number of assets, including the, 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 I think the PAX-G and the Tether was frozen in anticipation of the attacker selling them for, for unfreezable assets. So absolute mayhem taking place on Friday night. Uh, finally, the situation gets under control by, by Friday. By Saturday, the balance sheet of FTX is finally leaked. And we now know what the uh, assets and liabilities of FTX look like. Basically, FTX had $1 billion in liquid assets to $9 billion in liabilities, meaning that if looking at the current state of the balance sheet, almost certainly there are going to be pennies on the dollar for anybody. Who is, who is looking at uh, the, the, the FTX liquidation. So it's clear now that the scale of fraud at FTX was massive. It's clear that there was huge amounts of, um, of capital that was pulled out of FTX that should have been there for customer deposits. It's clear that it, it infected every element of the FTX empire. It even affected FTX US, which was originally perceived, and we thought on the show, that it was going to be totally cordoned off. And that was the indication that Sam was giving as of Wednesday. But the whole thing has now completely collapsed. And we're now learning more and more salacious details and drama of what was going on underneath the hood. So I'm going to stop there. We, we're going we're gonna to go into a lot of detail about a lot of these things. But I just want to first start with giving everybody up to speed on what has happened between then and now. It took, it took all of those facts before Matt Levine agreed it was fraud. Because I feel like if you actually have been reading like the financial coverage and normal news, it's all been like, oh, like they, they had some problems. They had asset liability mismatch. Maybe they could have borrowed funds, whatever. Right? And like today he was finally like, and he was like, yeah, I like Sam. He, could, he probably wasn't lying. And that was like Friday. Uh, and then, you know, today he's finally like, oh, actually this balance sheet is dog shit. And it's mainly them saying tokens that they control. They marked up to their like peak value um, and took no liquidity constraints or anything like that into account. So I feel like at this point, it's pretty clear that not only 
was that true? But like the BlockFi and Voyager acquisitions were really just another way to keep kind of the Ponzi scheme going. Because like it really, the interesting thing from a like theoretical lens about this is you're taking three separate businesses or entities that have three functions that on their own could be sustainable, like an exchange that earns trading fees, a market making operation that happens to have a very good fee tier. That's sort of the altruistic way of describing Alameda. And, and the last thing is uh, the ability to borrow against your own equity. But those three things, their, their utilities, when added together under one entity, looks like a Ponzi scheme. But if they were separate and adversarial, they're, they're fine and sustainable. And that's like the interesting, that to me, that's the funniest thing about this is like, somehow we just turned into a very standard Ponzi scheme. It's just that you took the new depositor's money and you used it to underwrite yourself FTT loans, which you then had to use to prop up FTT, which is basically buying up the, you know, paying the old depositors and you needed new, new flow of depositors to keep that going. And well, so here, here's the thing, Tarun, is that I, I completely agree with you. And it, it, it does put all of the acquisitions that Sam was doing over the summer into a very different light. Um, and so just, just, to, just to sketch out, because I think a lot of the audience might not totally understand. So you might remember in the summer after the three arrows blow up, a, a bunch of lenders went underwater and needed to be bailed out. And Sam kind of stepped in and announced that he was going to backstop a lot of the lenders. And um, at the time, a lot of people believed that Sam was just consolidating. He was being this JP Morgan-like capitalist. Um, it now seems this is the the theory. Okay, again, nobody really knows the exact details, but the theory is that um, Alameda was already underwater and was having their loans recalled by a lot of the other lenders. And the only way that they could one uh, prevent themselves from deleveraging, which would have caused Alameda to completely blow out, or two, basically also obfuscate the extent of of their of their um, their loan agreements with other parties, was that basically they had to bail out the banks that were loaning them money, and if they didn't do that that Alameda was just going to, you know, FTT was just going to be vomited up everywhere and Alameda itself would no longer be, be viable. Um, and so they, the, the idea is that actually they had to bail out BlockFi and, and Voyager because they were two of their own largest lenders. That's the idea. Now, again, we don't know if that's exactly true. You know, when, when this happened on, on, when we were doing the show last week, my assumption was that this started recently. My assumption was that the, 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 uh, the, the capital that was lent out from FTX customer deposits to Alameda was probably a momentary lapse that happened in the summer after 3AC blew up, right? It was basically, Sam was on the brink. He had to go to Alameda's rescue. And if he didn't, that everything was going to fall apart. Alameda was going to go to bankruptcy. Uh, the, you know, All of the Sam Empire tokens were going to unwind in a really dramatic way. And he thought, look, if I can just, if I can just tide over some liquidity now, I can save Alameda, pay back the loans, blah, blah, blah. All this can be made whole as long as crypto doesn't turn against me, right? The market doesn't turn against me. That was my mental model of probably what happened. As more of this information is coming out about just how consistently this pattern of misappropriation and fraud seems to have been at FTX, it now seems increasingly likely that actually this was happening from the beginning. Now, again, we don't know. This is speculation. There, there's so much fog of war right now about what the actual picture was at FTX. But the picture that we're getting so far seems to be that this was the intention from the beginning was to use FTX as a piggy bank for Alameda. And that and, and that's really scary that this so so one of the one of the big stories that came out from the Wall Street Journal this weekend was that um, apparently there was essentially this backdoor that was uh, some kind of some kind of program that Sam had access to that allowed him to basically keep two sets of books for FTX such that the auditors would get one set of books about what uh, where the assets were but he could you know with the click of a button 
move funds from FTX customer deposits into Alameda in a way that was opaque to their auditors and actually opaque to people internally at FTX, which is crazy and, and uh, demonstrates a, a clarity around fraud that I was not expecting to get at the heart of the story. It's funny that uh, right now is blowing up with people being like, Sam lied to Laura straight to jail <laughs> in response for this type of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, don't That's do that. Hilarious. It's criminal. <laughs> oh, tell um, me, go ahead. It's fun. It's funny because um, I remember during DeFi summer, um, there was something that I think Sam said to us, or someone else at FTX said to us on, on a call, basically saying, "Hey, all these early DeFi teams, they fucked up. They did these doing these public token sales um, because then you're explicitly selling this security." Like, why do you want to sell, you know, basically pseudo equity in your project well, early on? Like- actually, 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 this story, um, no, so I, so I relayed the story to you. It was not actually Sam who told me this. It was actually Kyle from Three Arrows who told me this. So, so let me, let me, let me tell you the story. Let me tell you the story. So this was, <laughs> so this was 2021. I know, I know. So this is 2021 last year. Uh, I, I, I'd come to Singapore and um, I, it was actually, it was like my second time meeting uh, the Three Arrows guys. And so I got, I got uh, lunch with Kyle, Kyle Davies in Singapore. And this was back when Sam was top of the world, Kyle was top of the world. Um, you know, these guys were just printing money. They were the, they were the kind of the, the titans of the industry. And um, he was telling me, you know, so they, they had a close relationship with Sam. Um, and Kyle was telling me, he's like, you know, I think I finally understood what Sam was doing. And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean you understood what Sam was doing? He was telling me, you know, the, 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 what, what Sam realized is that the people from the last generation of crypto, the way that they monetized their position in the market was that they would... They would, they would get really well-known, they would build all this press, get all this awareness, and then they would launch a token and they would sell that token to retail. And that was the, that was the game in 2017. And Sam realized that that game is stupid. Because if you play that game, one, you, you make money once, you just sell the token once and that's it. And then you get all these regulatory troubles, right? Oh, the SEC comes after you, the people lose money, they get really mad, and like you just have to deal with this thing forever. And what Sam realized is that uh, what you should do instead is you should launch tokens and you should be a net buyer of those tokens. Because if you are a net buyer of those tokens, then now that token is going to become really valuable because you're booing it in addition to everybody else. You're not perceived as a seller. You have no problems with regulators because regulators aren't mad that you're dumping the stuff on retail. And if you're Sam, you can use this as, as collateral and you can borrow the real money of crypto, which is dollars. And especially if you have a market-making firm that can monetize using those dollars, then that's where you make the real money. You don't make the real money doing an ICO, right? That's where you can make, okay, you can make a few hundred million doing an ICO. But if you want to make billions, you need dollars to go make those billions. And that was, uh, you know, according to, according to Kyle, that was a strategy that, that Sam was employing from the very beginning. He did, it with, uh, he did it with Serum. He did it with FTT. He did it with all these Sam tokens Dude, that have he- now... Uh, I guess sushi potentially as well. There's now speculation that that Sam was actually Chef Nomi all along, who was the original creator of Sushi Swap. You know, I remember when after I had this conversation with Kyle, I was like, "Huh, that's really interesting." Yeah, I guess that's true. But I I I associated that with Alameda. I thought, ah, that's what Alameda is doing. It's not what FTX is doing. FTX is an exchange, right? Like that's maybe Sam's personal strategy. But I I, I didn't connect the dots that this is um, that FTX itself would be beholden to this strategy. Um, and that's what I think what what it was crazy to everybody. But you know, in in twenty twenty one, like so, we never invested into FTX. We never invested into Serum. We never invested into any of the Sam ecosystem tokens. 
we found them to just to be so ridiculous. Like, so the way that the serum fundraise happened. So I don't know if, uh, 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 it was, uh, Tarun, you were there, you were there early in the, in the serum sale. Um, so when the serum sale happened, everyone heard that, you know, Sam was launching a DEX and the way that they conducted the sale was not like any VC round I've ever seen in my life. So literally they had an Excel spreadsheet and they had lots of, I think a million dollars a pop. And, uh, you had to put your name down in the Excel sheet. And it was, it was basically like the price for every lot would get higher programmatically. And so if you put your name in the Excel sheet as, okay, I'm, I'm in for, you know, 400 million FTV. And then the next person has to do 420 FTV. And the next person has to do 440 FTV. And so the, the game was that you need to get in as fast as possible, put your name in as fast as possible and get to a decision quickly. No time for due diligence, no time to even think it through. And Sam loved this mechanism. Right? He, he did this kind of thing multiple times because he just believed that VCs are idiots. And I mean, to an extent, maybe he was right. He, he just had a... The interesting thing, though, is for all the Sam coins, they actually were his noose at the end, um, if, you, mm. if you actually start to think about it. Because the thing that happened to them is that they all had these like seven-year emission schedules. Like they wouldn't fully have fully diluted until seven years. And yep. they started with an extremely small amount of uh, liquid tokens in the beginning. And then they had this like hyperinflationary schedule. So the people who bought into the serum sale Within one year, they could recoup their principal because the staking rewards were worth more than the principal, and so and the staking rewards were liquid. Like that was the that was the sort of like magic to getting all these people to buy it early. It was that hey, you get your money back in a year. Now the the problem with that is seven year emission schedule means that whatever valuation you're quoting, right? This like fully diluted valuation, which is like total number of future tokens versus the actual number that exists, it's kind of a sham. You can't really say that the token is worth that market cap at all, right? Because if someone had a loan that they have to liquidate, let's say if you borrowed against it, they'd never be able to liquidate it. And somehow all the centralized lenders are absolute dog shit at risk management. I mean, I, 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 you know, if you're centralized, it's much easier than what I have to do and what we do for, for DeFi. Like you don't have to make proposals, get people to vote. You literally can just be like, LTV is this, I'm going to liquidate you, fuck you, right? You're a bad lender. And all of these people are dog shit. In fact, I, my DMs after I wrote some tweets about this have been filled with people who worked at Celsius and Voyager being like, yeah, we couldn't, we weren't allowed to liquidate our top customers because they had three customers who were borrowing everything, which was like Alameda, Three Arrows, a few other firms. And they were like, yeah, our, the thing is we could never liquidate our customers because then we'd have no revenue. And we all needed to show these like huge amounts of income streams um, during the bull run. And so these, these, these centralized lenders had absolutely no incentive to A, adjust the loan to value, B, figure out when to liquidate a loan that's underwater, which is exactly what we, the point. They, in fact, they went bankrupt because they didn't liquidate Alameda or Three Arrows, right? That's, that's why Voyager needed to get bailed out. And the more crazy thing about this is that Sam convinced them to let him borrow as if the, the tokens were worth the fully diluted valuation. And one thing I think that's very clear from um, the missteps of Caroline Ellison, who is Alameda CEO, uh, is that after the uh, Coindesk leaked the balance sheet, one of the most important things that you should read from that sort of text that was there was that their liabilities were all in locked FTT. So they had they had some liquid assets of liquid FTT, but they had 
they're net short at that price, $4 billion of locked lock FTT. That means someone, probably Voyager or, or BlockFi or a combination of all of them, lent money probably at a loan to value of like 50%, which is ridiculous because like this thing is never, you could never liquidate this loan. Like that's how stupid these centralized, these centralized lenders deserve to die because they were all fucking retarded. Like I don't know how to describe how stupid some of the stories people who work there have DM me. Like I, it is, it is actually, they deserve to die. They are like the subprime lenders of 2008. And of course the difference is the subprime lenders usually lent to people who were not explicitly adversarial with them. They were just kind of bad borrowers. Here, they're explicitly adversarial borrowers who gave you collateral that they control the valuation of and they control the size of. And they sort of like, hey, look, here's this piece of paper that's worth $5 billion. So let, lend us a billion of your customer funds. And so that that's how the BlockFi's and, and Voyagers and stuff got to say, oh, look, we're making $100 million a year. We're charging 10% on this billion-dollar loan. And so, of course, FTX can make the interest payments for that. So the thing that is kind of crazy is, and this is really where I think the noose of the seven-year thing hung Alameda and FTX is eventually, you know, while the price is going up, you don't have to actually borrow. You're borrowing against something such that your net liabilities are actually decreasing because like your assets are going up. As things go down, as the price crashes, you have to start borrowing more because you have to go prop up the price of this thing. Because like if, if it reaches certain levels, you're, everything is liquidated all at once. You have this huge cascade. And so what are they doing? The, their market-making strategy for FTT and Serum was effectively the following. And you can see some evidence of this uh, in the order book. Because there's, there's really no bid. Like No one is buying this uh, organically. Everyone is just collecting their staking rewards and selling. And they basically had to borrow dollars against FTT and Serum buy any FTT and Serum that's being sold, which means they're now net long, they're even longer, this asset. And over time, they like had the spiral. And Caroline basically pulled the noose for them when she wrote that tweet about the $22 thing. Because she basically admitted that if they couldn't get it around, like if, if FTT fell before that amount, they were like completely doomed. And everyone knew how much, elite, at the very least, how much they're doomed for from that leaked Coindesk sheet. And, you know, I, I'm not even sure CZ was necessarily, he thought, oh, I'll just kill Alameda. He didn't, he probably didn't necessarily realize it was as entangled when he said he's going to sell XFTT. Yeah. I, I think their strategy was very, you know, it, it actually, it, I was thinking a lot of what Nick Carter said in the last show about how, you know, every cycle there is, you know, the, the highest flying stars are almost always overfitted to the market cycle. And very clearly, Alameda, you know, they really came of age, although they started, you know, people talk about the, the, um, the early, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin Japan R, blah, 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 that, that Alameda did, which like was kind of a, as we're learning now, was, was more of a shit show than they initially let on. The reality is that like where Alameda really came of age was in 2020 and 2021, in the midst of this kind of DeFi Solana mania, when the primary thing that they needed was dollars. And if you have dollars, you can yield farm, you can leverage up, you can bet on your own tokens. You can know when things are going to get listed. There was just a story in the Wall Street Journal um, about an hour ago, which uh, was talking about how, if you look at on-chain data, you can see very clearly that Alameda was buying up tokens before they were listed on FTX. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that that's brilliant sleuthing. I mean, everyone pretty much knew this that Alameda was basically the venture arm of FTX before FTX Ventures was spun up. This strategy worked like a charm 
2020, uh, in 2021. They made a crap load of money doing it and they thought it would still work. And that's what FTT and FTX was all designed around was they were adapted to this bull market environment. And when that bull market went away and the reliability of knowing which tokens were going to go up when and that having capital meant that you could yield farm and dump tokens and be totally cavalier about this stuff. You know, it, it was so weird as an observer because we, we weren't very close to, to FTX or to Alameda. We never invested into anything they did. It was so weird to see how like the right arm of FTX was supposed to be this like great stalwart exchange and it was supposed to be this wonderful thing. And the left arm of Alameda was this like mercenary cutthroat, you know, basically like just farm and dump fund. And people were, people loved Alameda. They wanted to take their money so badly. Like we would, we would sometimes lose deals to Alameda and we we're like, why are you taking Alameda's money? Like they're, 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 they're barely even a market making firm. They're just like a, they're like a, you know, farm and dump firm. Why, why would you want their, their capital? But they were winning deals because of their relationship with FTX and this idea that if you want to get listed on FTX and you want the SAM pump, you want to be integrated into the SAM empire, you have to take their money. And that became the engine, the growth engine that I think um, got them greedy. I mean, it is, it is actually though, like the real question to me is like how much, how large the loans were at Voyager, BlockFi, et cetera. Because that's the key way to measure like how much how much leverage they really took that they didn't count or like clearly they obviously didn't hedge anything. I mean, the linear wealth thing already tells you that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the other thing that I yeah. think like is is was a very childish mistake on their part is that capital management at like large scales in active capital management is very different than small scales. Like when they were like a 50 to $100 million firm versus a billion plus in AUM, you have to actually start being a lot more diligent about your net, how much leverage you really are holding versus like how much you think you're holding. And I think, I mean, as you can tell from their very shoddy bookkeeping, it's clear they were not doing a very good job of even keeping track of that. And you can get away with that, I think, at smaller sizes in the sense that like it'll be more apparent to you. But when you have a large book of a very large set of assets and like you're not really thinking about how correlated some of the assets are, they may might you might go from being like 1.5x levered to 10x levered because five of your assets are all moving in the same direction, which is against the side you're short. It's very much much easier at a larger scale to like completely misestimate your leverage ratio. Although nothing is more dog shit than saying oh, uh, actually, we thought we had 0x leverage and we actually had 1.7x. 1.7 divided by 0 is still infinite, my friend. <laughs> like... Yeah, I, I mean, one thing that was very clear, I mean, I'm sure that you spoke to ex-Alameda people over the last year. We, we, would, we, we interviewed a few people who came out of Alameda and everybody who was there said that it was just, it was a circus. Like, there were so few controls. Uh, it was not well run. It was not well managed. I heard everything was like literally managed in Metamask. There was like no like system, like accounting system for keeping track of all the wallets. It was like you just wrote in a Google Sheet. Yeah, and at that time, you know, for young people, I mean, I don't, I don't blame them. Like they thought Alameda was so prestigious; it was so well known. Everybody thought Sam was like the, the, you know, the, the he was the, the visionary of crypto. And so a lot of young traders wanted to work at Alameda, and they churned really fast because Alameda didn't pay well. It was a horrible place to work. And so we, we'd, we'd constantly talk to a stream of people who left Alameda and wanted to get a better job. But the, I mean, the one thing that, that you're pointing to, Tarun, which is also part of the center of the story, is the corporate governance at FTX. And a lot of that has come out 
um, in the in the in the last week. So you know, we we never were that close to FTX. We're invested in some of their competitor exchanges like Bybit, and so we never really kicked the tires that closely on their fundraises. It turns out uh, that FTX did not have a CFO. They didn't even have a board. Uh, they took in $1.7 billion of venture funding, and they had almost no controls. And we're learning more and more that in the Bahamas, there was a, a house that basically Sam and his core lieutenants, as well as some of their friends, lived in that was basically kind of like a polyamorous commune-type place um, where just everybody who was part of the Sam ecosystem uh, lived together. Apparently, they, I mean, it's absolute craziness. So apparently, there were a lot of relationships amongst each other that kind of were pretty fluid of people sleeping together who are part of the core team at FTX. They were, they were quite secretive about it. They were also, uh, part of the orientations when people would join FTX is that Sam would walk through different stimulants and he would encourage people to try out some of these different stimulants in their onboarding. I don't know if this is verified, but I, I, I saw this in one of the accounts of people at FTX. I mean, I will, I will say that the best uh, primary source, because like all of this is heresy, except for Caroline Ellison's blog, Tumblr. Yes, yes. Uh, which Caroline's is truly, Tumblr truly one of, I, I feel, oh. I feel like reading that was like really understanding like the mindset of an incompetent supervillain. Like they had all the traits of like sociopathy, but like none of the like self-awareness to understand that you have to like execute that in a certain way. <laughs> But yeah, it's her, her, her Tumblr has a lot of, uh, a lot of details about the polycule. So I would, I would highly recommend you go. I, I, I spent two hours doom scrolling. Sort of the, the other picture that's emerging here is like, there's this inner circle. There's this top circle at FTX, which is like these, you know, four officers and there's everybody else. Um, and so, you know, I, I knew people who rotated through FTX and I don't get the sense they were in on this massive scheme. There was massive deception and massive just fraud, but it was not as if like the entire system was was built this way. It was like a small group of people who were who were going out and were actually in. Yeah, on, on although, yeah, uh, the more that I talked to people, um, I mean, Haseem kind of mentioned it. I mean, it appears that the operation was very shambolic and just, you know, I kind of made this point last week when we had the discussion with Nick, but, you know, the more I think about it, I think, yeah, I think like Pretty much um, last week, I think some of my early messages out to people were to try to understand what the security setup was at the exchange, because the idea that somebody could just move the funds without like it setting off alarm bells in the exchange that I, I was just like, I know how a crypto exchange works in terms of security and like it should be some kind of multi-sig at minimum there's, you know, uh, you know, obviously there can be like rituals even around, you know, when you move funds from the, from the cold storage, like how you do that. And so I was kind of like, like, how did that even work? Like on a functional level, like how did they actually move this money without, you know, somebody at least like quitting and just being like, I'm, I'm not, you know, going to participate in this. I'm leaving this company. Like there, there was something very odd about that. But the more that I've learned, like, yeah, there were just certain kind of key elements that were missing. And then on top of that, what you mentioned about kind of applying this time pressure to a lot of the investors, uh, I think that was definitely a big part of it. And frankly, you know, there were certain, I think, I, let's just say, I think they were kind of strategic about which investors they went after in order to kind of give um, themselves a certain sheen of like having passed a certain bar, maybe in due diligence, because they, 
maybe pressured those those groups a certain way um and the actual like uh reputations um that those groups had they didn't actually get to get to do what their normal process let's put it that way the whole thing uh, you know i just like last week when i was saying that i feel that spf was sort of like you know it, it like he was like hermione and it was like you suddenly found out he was voldemort now i'm just like wow like I realize I, this was just baked in from the beginning. The more that I'm like learning about kind of how things operated over a time period and how they were set up, because like I said, any normal crypto exchange is very well aware that like, you know, some 90% or whatever of all crypto exchanges have been hacked. And so typically most of them, they're just like, the main thing we have to do is keep the coin secure. And so, you know, you will see like kind of a priority around that. And so the fact that that was able to happen without tripping some alarm bells amongst certain employees, that's why I was just like, how did this even happen? And yeah, you know, my conclusion, at least so far is like, yeah, they did not even have sort of kind of the basic setup in place. Well, FTX also very famously had very few employees and they were very proud of that fact. I remember, I think there was one point in like either 2020 or 2021, they had like 40 employees or something like that, um, which is obviously insane, like 10 times fewer than, you know, Coinbase would have for sort of a comparable traction and size. And so I also can't help but speculate and maybe look back in retrospect and think like, maybe that is also part of the design is having few people means having fewer eyeballs um, and making it easier to sort of bypass compliance. Last week, we were chatting with a bunch of the um, heads of exchanges in Asia. And when all of this was going down, a lot of them were basically telling us that like, they thought FTX was going to go down. And at that time, we didn't believe it. I mean, we just, did, we, we just couldn't. I mean, like, I don't know. It seemed like rumors were circulating. And it's like, okay, why are you guys buying into these rumors? It doesn't seem plausible. Wait, wait, wait. And, but just to understand, they thought that just because of events last week? Or did they actually think that even before, uh, before this whole thing about the balance sheet? When the math withdrawals were taking place. They thought that FTX was was going to go under, and we we just didn't believe it. Like to be honest, up until basically Monday, I didn't believe that anything was really wrong. I I, I knew that Alameda was going to be in trouble. Like obviously, uh, if all that FTT was going to get sold, Alameda was going to get screwed. But I did not believe for a second that there were secret loans taking place between FTX and Alameda of customer funds. That that just seemed so implausible with everything that we'd seen about all these institutional investors, about Sam and and the controls that must have been in place given that they were talking about going public. If you're talking about going public, like, uh, of course, there's no way that that could be the case. Little did we know exactly how bad the governance was at FTX, but you know, we, had, we had no insight into that. And so they were, they were telling us not only, one, that uh, they thought FTX was going to blow, but two, what they were telling us is that like, they thought that a lot of the FTX numbers were faked. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, it's, it's quite possible. It's quite possible that it's just that- Like, wait, volume, volume numbers, numbers or what kind of numbers? Volume numbers in FTX were faked. Because what they were telling us was that like, look, we don't see FTX in these markets, right? When we're, when we're going out and battling for market share in these different markets globally, we never see FTX, but they're always, you know, top three, top four for volume. Now, it's possible that that's because FTX had so much US institutional volume that uh, that's where all the volume was coming from was basically these big institutional players. And most of these other big exchanges- are retail oriented, right? So like Binance, OK, Bybit, you know, these guys, they focus on retail. They don't focus on institutions. FTX seemed to be focusing on institutions that might be part of the story. But I would not be surprised for a second if what we also find as we go through the rubble is that FTX was, was juicing their volume numbers. Now, again, it's going to be a while right now. It's all in the fog of war. We don't know what we don't know. And, and all these people are kind of coming out of the woodwork now saying, ah, I knew it all along. Sam was an evil guy. He once stiffed me for blah, blah, blah. 
anyway, a big part of what is striking about all of this is now, okay, we take a step back, right? Clearly, this is one of the biggest catastrophes, not just in crypto, that we knew already on Tuesday. But now we know it's actually one of the biggest catastrophes in venture history, right? This is basically an Enron scale fraud that was enabled by uh, some of the biggest VC firms and just the, the culture of venture capital in, in this industry and in, in general. And it, it's gotten me reflecting a lot on uh, why did this happen? Whose fault is it? Uh, beyond obviously Sam, obviously Sam is one whose principal fault it is. Um, but in terms of who enabled him, what are the lessons that we take away as an industry? And when I say as an industry, I don't just mean crypto, but I also mean the tech industry. Uh, because I think what happened here, I mean, obviously it was a bunch of, yeah, crypto investors invested into FTX, but a bunch of just tech investors invested into FTX as well. Um, I mean, pension funds so, too. Pension funds Ontario. as well. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Ontario did, uh, Tomasek did, uh, which is the sovereign wealth fund of Singapore. Um, you've also got BlackRock. You've also got, you know, you've got Sequoia, you've got Lightspeed, you've got Paradigm, you've got Multicoin, you've got all, you know, all these players who invested into the same company. None of them required a board seat. None of them required a CFO. Clearly, none of them required audited financials from a reputable firm. Like there's some Mickey Mouse firm that did their audits. Apparently, I, I heard that uh, the, somebody, somebody had asked them, oh, what was it? It was um, Chamath said on All In Podcast that he asked them for audited financials from a big four accounting firm and, uh, and asked them to like create a board. Uh, with with external uh, board members, and Sam told him to fuck off. And then I heard um, that uh, Sam apparently was on a call with Steve Schwartzman, the CEO of Blackstone. And um, Steve uh, and Steve Schwartzman, like you know, he didn't really uh, he was skeptical of the FTX story. And Sam told him on a call that he was an old man and he didn't get it because he's too old, and hung up on him. And so this um, this arrogance and this. Uh, this kind of, it sort of became this legend that fed on itself. And that not only, and I think it's not only VCs, but it's also the media. Because the media really created Sam, right? Like I remember Sam back when he was first getting to the space in, in 2019, 2020. Um, he wasn't a big deal back then, right? He was starting the fund. Yeah, I feel like the first time I'd ever even realized he was in crypto was I met him at your office. Yeah, that was before I joined Dragonfly. Right, right. That, was, that was when... That was, that was before I came on board. Um, it, it's, a, it's a weird story because, um, so Alex and, and Bo, who were originally at Dragonfly before I joined, they sat down with Sam back when he was running Alameda. He was trying to raise debt uh, because he didn't, wanna, he didn't want to actually have external investors in the fund. He just wanted to uh, sell debt at like a 15% note. It's been, it's been now circulated widely on Twitter. And so uh, they were interested. So he, he was then pitching the idea of FTX. And uh, they were trying to invest into Alameda itself, but he wouldn't take external money. And so he was like, hey, I want to start a fund, or sorry, I want to start an exchange with Alameda. And so uh, they, tried to, uh, they tried to invest. They thought Sam seemed like an impressive guy. They brought him to Asia. They, they introduced him to a bunch of heads of exchanges. And uh, they ended up having a falling out uh, between Bo, my, my now partner, and, and Sam, because Sam just kept flipping the script on them. He kept saying like, oh, okay, we're going to do this thing at this price. And the next day he would change it and he would kind of just go back and forth. And he was just so aggressive and so difficult to work with that they just decided like, look, I, we just can't work with this guy. And so they ended up walking away from the deal. And Sam ended up, uh, his seed round uh, was, was done by other people, I guess, you know, uh, Race Capital and some other folks who ended up doing the FTX seed round. And uh, after that, actually for a while, Sam really didn't like Dragonfly. He, uh, he refused to do deals with us for a while until... Uh, until some, you know, eventually enough water had passed under the bridge. But at that time, Sam was just seen as like kind of a quirky market maker guy 
who got into the space. He wasn't, he, you know, nobody was scared of Sam. Nobody was amazed by Sam. He was just like a guy who traded and uh, was going to start an exchange. But this legend started to congeal around him. And I really think the media, it's, it's very Elizabeth Holmes in retrospect, right? About how all the stuff that a normal person would look at and be like, wow, that's really weird. He's like kind of a weird guy. He's got these kind of personality traits that make him difficult to work with. He's like on, he's playing League of Legends while he's on a call with you. He seems like kind of a dick. He's sort of disrespectful. All these things kind of became lionized and sort of became part of his, his character. And the media, you know, just ate it up and, and fed into it. And he became this celebrity because of the fact like, you know, okay, he has the, uh, you know, he, he has the crazy hair. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't care when he's on a call with you. He wears the crappy t-shirts. Uh, he has the Toyota Corolla. He sleeps on a beanbag, right? This, this mythology developed around him and um, it enabled this whole thing. I think a lot of people pattern matched him to like Mark Zuckerberg or to Elon Musk and said, oh, he's got this, he's got this unique idiosyncratic brilliance or maybe even in crypto like Vitalik or Hayden, right? They're, they're, they're also founders who kind of have that idiosyncratic character he fed into that romanticism about the countercultural founder, the 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 idiosyncratic founder, the the slightly spectrumy founder, uh, or very. I, I mean, that, that Sequoia note that they deleted was truly one of the funny. Like, you can find it. It's <laughs> do you, you want to reiterate that note? Archive. What's in there? That, that some of the stuff in that note is ridiculous. Like the first thing is they were lionizing him for playing League of Legends while pitching them. Um. <laughs> The second thing is they were just like, it sounded like they didn't, their form of diligence was more like, what can we do to get in rather than like, hey, asking any questions. And I think they definitely enjoyed the like uh, brand name stuff, like really harping on that for both Sam and Gary, who's the CTO who no one knows where he is, I guess. (laughs) But uh, the thing is, it doesn't read like an investment thesis letter as much as it reads like a a profile paid for you know, you know like a I don't know I, yeah Laura I mean, how would you describe it so th- this is why I just wanted to like separate out some of the things that Hasib was talking about that profile I believe was written for some kind of Sequoia publication and um, a number of the VC firms have been launching their own publications because. They and even I think maybe some of the tech companies are doing this um, because they believe the media is evil and out to get them and blah blah blah. You know this whole thing like A16Z and even like you'll hear some of the Coinbase people kind of have this attitude. And so they have been launching their own publications, which you know I mean I of course I interact with these people and they're lovely and whatever. Um, you know I've never had anybody be like outrightly hostile toward me. But, you know, I'm just going to call it like it is like they're essentially propaganda outlets for, you know, their portfolio companies and whatever. Um, and so that's <laughs> it's called marketing. Hasid, propaganda is a very Hasid, that's a very no, Hasid, listen, 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 because that profile, it came out of, you know, one of these outlets. Right. And yeah, OK, maybe the traditional media wrote, you know, glowing profiles of Sam. However, like when so for a traditional journalist, when you are doing that kind of thing, like, you know, as far as we understand, like we're not VCs, but you know, you will see like certain investors. And to you, that means like, oh, they passed whatever due diligence. So I understand like, yes, they definitely should have dug deeper and they missed certain things. However, 
clearly from how shocked everybody was uh, this past week, I, you know, don't think that um, there was anything like, like, I, I, let, let us put, let's put it this way. I, I definitely feel that whatever it was that Sam and, and um, his team did to kind of pull the wool over people's eyes, like it was effective enough that when you have this sense that, okay, these, you know, like a pension fund and whatever investing, like that just says something to you about kind of the hoops that this has gone through. Right. And now we're learning, okay, like maybe some of that didn't happen, but you know, I do feel that actually in the end, you know, journalism gets vindicated here because none of this would have happened if Coindesk, and I'm going to call out Ian Allison specifically, who is the reporter who leaked the Alameda financials, which, you know, that is what triggered this whole thing. And, you know, kudos to them. Like, I have been in multiple chats where people are saying, like, Ian deserves a Pulitzer and all this stuff. And, you know, I I do, like, I'm sure people are well aware that, you know, when I approach my work, like, I'm trying to find out you know, the facts and to verify things. And, and, you know, that takes, it takes work. It's like, it's not easy. Like just one other lesson, by the way, that, you know, I've taken, I'm granted, I'm constantly learning this, but it was especially on display this past week is like crypto Twitter just moves at a pace that is like so fast, like for a journalist, you know, it's just like, yeah, there are just certain things that, um, and people are willing to run with like whatever they're hearing. And um, so sometimes when you want to be a little bit more careful, it's just like, okay, well, wait a second, you know, I, I need to do a little bit more to, to make sure whatever. So um, anyway, all of this is to say that um, I definitely actually feel that one of the takeaways would be that, hey, you guys, journalism is valuable and um, we shouldn't shy away from, you know, when people have critical coverage, there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, there is a danger when you have um, places like these tech firms or whatever that are like, we only want to put out positive stuff about it. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, 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 no. So therefore, we're going to like control the message and we're going to have our own companies, media outlets and our own publications. Like, I think there's a danger in that. And that was on display with the Sequoia. No, no, no. Okay. So first of all, nobody reads Sequoia to get their coverage of Sam Bankman-Fried, right? They were reading the cover of Forbes. They were reading the cover of Fortune. That's that's not true. That's definitely not true. I I can definitely tell you that there's a lot of people who are LPs in Sequoia, for instance, will probably read that and say, hey. um, Oh, sure. And then then they'll try to enter the round. The Ontario, Ontario Pension Fund entered that way. They, they, they entered because they LP'd in a bunch of funds who had invested in B1 and they entered Fair in enough. C because they, so, so do, I, I, I would definitely push back on that not being read. So it, it is definitely, it definitely influences people. It's just not, doesn't influence people like you or me, but it certainly influences people. Okay, who are it like, does. It does. I don't know Look, what to do. I don't know what to do. I see this money treadmill and I'm sitting on this capital to allocate. Where do I go? Where do I go? Where do I go? Oh, Sequoia said this. I'm going to go. Right. That there is, there is some truth to that. Okay, look, here, here's, what, here's what I'll say, okay? So first of all, it is not the responsibility of the media, and I don't want to be misconstrued as saying that the media should have figured out that Sam was a fraud, right? Of course not. Nobody knew that Sam was a fraud. Even the people who diligenced him did not know that he was a fraud because he was hiding it. That's what makes yeah, fraud Yeah, even hard. the people who worked, like, you know, at a high level in FTX and Alameda, yeah. Exactly. And so yeah. that, that is not the responsibility of the media or even of the people who were DDing him if their DD was sufficient. If their DD was not sufficient, then it's on them. We don't know. We don't know what they were shown. If they were shown fraudulent documents, or if they're if they're like if there were forgeries involved, we still don't have that information yet. Okay, um, I'm not saying that the media is responsible for playing somebody up into the narrative that they were clearly feeding them. Right? And Sam was was leaning into this thing. He was on the cover of billboards. He was getting into TV commercials. Initially, it wasn't that way. Right? Initially, it was just FTX. And Sam realized his image was so powerful, 
And it was working so well that he just leaned into it and started doing everything media-wise, right? I also don't, I mean, I don't blame Sequoia for marketing their deals. Like that's their job. They're a VC. They're supposed to market their entrepreneurs. The, the problem is that now that we know that Sam is a, a fraud, that the media is now totally reversing the story, right? With, with, with Elizabeth Holmes, it was different. Elizabeth Holmes, uh, the VCs were actually against Elizabeth Holmes. The VCs didn't buy in to Theranos. It was all these like random investors who didn't really know what the hell they were doing that were investing into Theranos and believed the story, right? That is a place where I think the media was more liable because the media built up this narrative that allowed all these much less sophisticated investors uh, coming into the fray. In, in Sam's case, it was not the way at all. In Sam's case, it was very sophisticated investors who got bamboozled. One thing I just want to you know, I, one point I just want to make is that we're saying the media, but it was also the media that exposed Elizabeth Holmes. You know, John Kerry wrote yes, the Wall Street Journal, so, and, and even before then, Ken Aletta in the New Yorker. So, you know, like there's, I mean, just any reporter will tell you, like when you approach a story, sometimes it's like, okay, I got to write a thousand words and whatever. And like, then you're only going to spend whatever, you know, a day or two or something. And then other times it's like, okay, I have 8,000 words. I'm going to spend like, you know, six weeks, two months, whatever. So, like when we say the media, um, yeah, it's just like, I'm not going to blame like somebody who literally spent two days writing about Theranos or, you know, Sam or of whatever. Course, of course, of course. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not claiming that, you know, individual people in the media are responsible for writing things about, about Elizabeth Holmes. But like the, the reality is that in the Valley, people were broadly skeptical of Theranos for a long time as he was, as she was, uh, you know, that company was continuing to get funded. Um, that wasn't true for FTX, right? There weren't people hanging around saying, Hey, I think this thing is a fraud. You're absolutely right that okay, the CoinDesk leaked the 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 balance sheet of Alameda, but again, that had that had nothing to do with fraud. It was just that okay, Alameda is over leveraged, right? That was that was what that that told people. And then uh, CZ announced that he was going to sell a bunch of FTT. And again, even CZ almost certainly did not think that Sam had lent out customer funds to Alameda. Otherwise, he, he probably would not have done that because he ended up you know knocking down the entire industry and setting us back by by so long by revealing this massive fraud. Right? He probably did not want to do that. And so I think what, what, what really happened was that the thing just unraveled. And obviously this, this leak of, of Alameda's balance sheet has something to do with it, but it was just that the lie got too big. That's what caused this thing to unravel. It was not any single person or any single insight from anyone that caused this thing to unravel. It was just this kind of perfect storm that, that, that caused the whole thing to come crumbling down. If, if Sam had successfully raised $4 billion in that you know, midnight on, on Monday, then maybe we wouldn't be talking about this. Maybe we would still be walking around assuming that FTX was still perfectly fine. I, I think I would disagree with that for a couple of reasons. One is there was sort of like clear sort of accounting fraud-like uh, attributes to most of the revealed balance sheet. I think if, if we really mark-to-market liquidity-adjusted almost all the assets, like they're down much more than what is stated. And the way that like I think it was being represented to people that were was trying to fundraise from was that oh i we own you know everything was marked to the fdv value and i think there's for, a lot for of alameda in that, about alameda but even for ftx like because they're th- think about the sa- the serum portion of the balance sheet i mean that was they were marking that to 2.1 billion dollars there was no way that was worth 2.1 billion dollars so, but the, the coindesk article was not super deep, right? Because they also mentioned that, hey, we're discounting stuff that is illiquid. Um, you know, they, they alluded to that fact. They didn't talk about what the liabilities consisted of. The liabilities... I'm, I'm saying, like, let's look at the balance sheet that, it, it, that we've seen now. Yeah, the balance sheet now, I totally agree with you. If you go backwards, in hindsight, that $4 billion he would have raised would have just gone to propping up 
that balance sheet to try to even get it back to the level. We oh, uh, to be clear, I'm not saying that it wouldn't eventually have unwound, right? If you are nine, if yes. you're $8 billion in the hole, you're going to, you're, it's going to fall through at some point, right? Uh, it, it may be later, but there's no way you're going to make back $4 billion of cash yeah. to pay back your customers eventually, right? It's just not, I mean, they made 400 million last year in net profit, which was one of the most legendary years for crypto trading ever. So I completely agree with you. It would have eventually unwound, but we wouldn't have heard about it now. We would we would still be walking around thinking that FTX was fine. I don't think I don't think that would have been totally true because we it, even if the bailout succeeded, there was already this notion that there was some trouble on the balance sheet that you already had to have this thing happen, and 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 eventually that would basically force people to to want much more tight accounting. And mm-hmm. and I think at that point you would have you would have found that it was effectively accounting fraud, like very similar to Enron. I actually all the people are comparing this to Lehman. I don't think that's like apt comparison i think enron had a lot of like weird securities that they also marked in in bizarro ways like and that their auditor was kind of stupid to understand and like alameda ftx basically and alameda treated all these centralized lenders as the idiot auditor which you know arguably was true but i i I think there's a sense in which there was like clearly a lot of accounting fraud and like the thing you're saying that kyle told you in summer is is effectively admitting to that, right? It's effectively admitting to like we're just doing accounting fraud on these on these tokens in 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 a way because like there is not a gap measurement for them, mm-hmm. um, and you know governments are going to be extremely slow to seeing this. But yeah, it's very easy to get into a bad leverage cycle. So my point is, I, I even at the four billion, if it got bailed out, I think it, there would have been some some sort of day of reckoning very soon, not not very long, because like that type of hole is incredibly unsustainable i mean yeah. you can just see it in the serum and ftt order books like it was just there, there was clearly just someone buying anything and taking every price and i i wonder if like perhaps alameda in the run-up last year their market making strategies got less and less sophisticated because they didn't really have to be because everything was going up so even though they're buying you know even though they're quoting they're, they're quoting the sell direction and everything's going up. The sell direction wasn't that much. They're making more in fees in te- technically. And like FTX was because was sort of like, if you look at them as a single unit, was like making more money by taking their loss. That subsidy suddenly becomes extremely bad when you have to cover everyone trying to get out of Luna simultaneously. And you haven't changed your market making strategy and you're sort of obligated to the parent company. Now, does that make make all the losses make sense? I don't know. Like, if you add up the total UST volume on FTX and assume that, say, you know, ten percent to twenty five percent was filled by Alameda on the other side as a loss, you still don't get to the numbers we see. Which is why I think they had to have some leverage crisis with the centralized lenders. Like, I, there, mm. there's something very, very fishy about the centralized lenders, and understanding what collateral they still hold uh, is really going to be crucial to this. Yeah. We're going to learn all that stuff, I think, very slowly over the next over the next year or two. As the, many years, I mean, if you go by Enron's timeline, it took forever. So. Uh, that's true. That's true. And you can see from the corporate structure of FTX, which was like this gigantic spider web of entities across many different countries, that this is going to take a very long time to unwind. Trading firms are often structured like that. I think the biggest um, possible malfeasance on the part of the venture investors. Was the venture investors didn't ask for the following? They or maybe they did and just got told to fuck off, as you were saying earlier. Which is, you normally when you invest in sort of a, a group of companies like that, you you from a governance standpoint, you ask for a a holding company, 
you know, like Berkshire Hathaway, holding company of, of many sub-companies like that. You ask for a holding company and you invest in the holding company with some rights associated to each of these entities. And from what I can tell, I don't actually know if any venture investor actually knew the entire set of, of entities that existed, part one. Part two, uh, I think like the idea of investing in any one of them and like making its valuation really large suddenly means the other ones can sort of like borrow against the valuation of, of that in, in sort of some weird ways, implicitly or explicitly via transfers that are made and, and loans between entities. And I suspect that actually kept things propped up quite a bit longer than you might have realized versus like if it had a holding company and like everything had to, to fall at once. It's like, and that to me was always the weirdest part about that about that fundraising round. It was like people were like, would be like, yeah, we invest in FTX. And then they forced us to invest in FTX US. And I was like, wait, so there's no holding company you invested in? You invested in these things separately? And they're like, yeah, there are probably some other entities, but like they don't matter. And like people were very blase about the the org, this, this, this spiderweb chart in a way that like I was like, okay, I don't know what you invested in because it doesn't sound like you know what you invested in. Yeah. So I guess that's the other question. So, so first thing I want to say is that I don't, I don't believe in the concept of collective guilt. And so I don't believe there's such a thing as the media is responsible or that the VCs are responsible. But it's pretty clear that some individual VCs in this process enabled this and that other VCs like ourselves who maybe you know, didn't speak out about things that we didn't agree with may also bear some of the responsibility for what happened and kind of what Sam became in the industry. Um, this is something I've been, I've been thinking a lot about over the weekend. We, we didn't invest in Sam. Obviously, we, even had, we had Sam on the show. We were, we were friendly-ish with him. You know, we were on, we chat about things occasionally and occasionally we find ourselves in rounds together because he would invest into a lot of stuff. I, I, I never suspected Sam of anything like this. And um, I, I found him to be an impressive person. Like when I chatted with him, he seemed very smart. He seemed very shrewd. He seemed very capable. I didn't agree with the way that he ran FTX. I didn't agree with the relationship between FTX and Alameda. You know, we work in an industry where there's all sorts of shit that's going on that you're not going to agree with. And if you, if you nope your way out of, everything that you, you find untoward or that you're uncomfortable with, you're just not going to be able to do anything in this industry besides just hold Bitcoin. So I, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about, let's, let's ignore individual VCs because, I mean, we could do that all day and it's kind of a stupid thing to do because they're, they're doing that enough themselves. Is, what do you think about VCs on the whole and um, the, the extent to which VCs or VC culture enabled this to happen? I, I think it's just a byproduct of, of the market to an extent, right? Like this is so... If you think about like FTX's rise, it was 2020, 2021, when everything tech was just getting money thrown at it at crazy valuations. And that's naturally what's going to happen in that kind of an environment when you have you know, too, too much capital chasing too few opportunities. Um, and so naturally, one way you can discriminate on capital is through diligence and through branding. Um, and the capital that doesn't ask questions, as we saw with the Schmoth thing, is going to get more access than, than not. That sort of you know, gets baked into the price. I think the thing that, I mean, maybe it's maybe obvious to say about FTX is so sad is not only was this enterprise value destroyed, which, you know, that is the risk that you bear investing in, in venture, investing in, in making any sort of investment, but it's the customer deposits and the user deposits that, that also evaporated, right? Like, uh, what was it? Uh, the, uh, it was the electric car company that just got charged with fraud. Um, Nikola? Um, Nikola, Nikola, Nikola. Nikola, Yeah. Nikola, okay, a lot of people lost their money, but they, they knew kind of explicitly what they were doing, right? They're, they're speculating on this electric car company stock or, you know, hey, you, you bought Bird Scooters and Bird Scooters is now 
what, like $20 million, something like that. Okay, but you, you kind of know what you're doing. Here, it's it's basically the commingling of these different types of you know, investors or customers and, and the loss there that I think is just like staggering it and sets it aside from, I think, a lot of these other you know, venture failures in the past two years. Yeah. So, so I think, I guess this gets back to my point in the, be- the beginning of the show. I was like, there are three entities here, three sort of operations that on their own individually, assuming that there's like rational actors trading on them or, or arbitraging things are totally valid businesses. One, you know, one being the exchange making fees, one being a market maker and one being a lender lending against equity or, or tokens. The problem is if you combine them in the right way, such that there's no one arbing the spreads between them, you get, you get this like Ponzi scheme. And it's like very, it's, it's not, this is why the idea of like investing in like pieces of this big thing, actually it can be deleterious because you actually basically fund this like Ponzi, like the incentives to make, make this like Ponzi like thing. I mean, it, it really was a Ponzi scheme at the end of the day. Cause like, it's like very hard to say, say, see any other way of describing the idea of taking new customer funds and lending it to yourself to then prop up this token that is, you know, implicitly paying off the new customer fund. Uh, and the value transfer to early FTT and serum holders, I think the idea that that was not transparent to the depositors is probably the biggest frustration, especially relative to something like DeFi, where like that you can you can see when that happens. Like there's no, there's no way to hide that, and like all of this proof of reserve stuff is right at the moment kind of a charade because it's actually quite hard to guarantee the liability side of this, especially if there's leverage involved, because you actually don't know all the counterparts. You don't, unless all the counterparts are DeFi protocols, which then reduces to like, okay, the DeFi protocols are the only ones that guarantee you public revelation of, of liabilities and assets, right? Like every, everything else is relying on some notion of tagged addresses. And, you know, there's a a little, still a little trust me, bro aspect to that. Even the even even all these things that try to do liability matching, um, you know, there are all these like awesome ZK protocols for doing it, but none of them can deal with like a derivatives exchange. They all assume that they're they're giving you proofs of assets and liabilities on the spot instrument. None of them can handle the derivative instrument, and so I, I think that that's something that DeFi is like the only thing that's ever existed to guarantee that. Yeah, well, until everything is in DeFi, which is gonna not not gonna happen anytime soon. We still need to trust people. We need to trust operators. We need to trust the people who are building these companies to be who they say they are. And Sam was not that. And I guess, to, like to me, it comes back to the question: Is like, should we have known? Should people in the industry have known? Should the VCs have known? Again, we don't. We don't actually know enough yet. We're still kind of in the fog of war. All this stuff is coming out now. Everybody who's ever had a gripe with Sam is now going on Twitter and telling their story. And it now kind of seems like the story is that you should have known. And I think this is probably not exactly right. Um, I think like, as far as I know, Sam was not a, he was not somebody who people were going around saying, I think he's a scammer. I think he's stealing money. I think he's you know embezzling funds from FTX customer deposits. You know, people had different gripes with him that he was cavalier, that he was mercenary, that he was a dick. Um, but I don't know anybody who seriously claimed that he was stealing money. I mean, there's this thing that's happening now that I think, you know, uh, one of the big Twitter accounts is covering this was talking about that. You know, anybody who now has a relationship with Sam or had a relationship with Sam, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like uh, being in a picture with like Ghislaine Maxwell, you know, it was like at the time, like they were, just, they were just a normal person who like kind of made the rounds and like everybody's interviewed him at some point. We've had him on the show, you know, like you've had, you've, you've had him on Unchained multiple times. He's been on every single podcast, he's been on Odd Lots. 
he's been, you know, he's met with uh, Bill Clinton and with uh, Tony Blair and blah, blah, blah. Like everybody has been around this guy. The question is like, do, do you think? I mean, pour one out for, for Tom Brady. I feel like, didn't he actually <laughs> invest money? Like I thought this was he like, did. not. This yeah, he did. Yeah. It was like 50 million. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, he's had a rough year. He Tom Tom Brady's year, I feel like, has just been a lot of. Uh... But no, I, I I seriously want to ask that question. Like, what do you guys think? Because I feel like this is so much of what Twitter is doing now. Is they're obsessing over every single thing that anyone has ever said about Sam. I, I mean, imagine imagine if if uh, the fact that like all the Enron uh, execs were like really good friends with George Bush existed, and you had Twitter around that time, you'd have social media would have. <laughs> done the same thing i think this is basically like what does enron plus social media look like hmm. which is a new emergent effect yeah i actually want to address uh the earlier question before we talk or before i um you know add something on this but um going back to the vc issue like i kind of tweeted about this yesterday but another thing that i keep thinking about is fred ursum is a co-founder of coinbase and paradigm invested in ftx and so there's just something there where I'm like, so I don't know, you guys tell me when you're a VC, what kind of relationship do you have with your portfolio company? Because I'm a little bit like either Fred knew nothing about what was going on at FTX in terms of the setup and the security and all, all these other things I mentioned, or um, he did and like couldn't, you know, influence Sam. I like, I, it just does not compute to me that those two people could have had a relationship around building this company and that FTX would just be so, 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 so different from how Coinbase operates. Like there's just something I find so strange about that. Well, the first thing is that, um, so remember a Fred, so, okay, I, I, I don't know. So I'm going to, I'm going to just speculate basically. So first let me, let me caveat with that. So the first thing is that, you know, Fred was building a domestic exchange in the U S which was U S regulated. Sam is building an overseas exchange in the Bahamas that was servicing international clients, which just means the standards are very different for the level of compliance and, and, you know, the things you have to do. Second is that, remember, this FTX grew during COVID. And so people, you, you couldn't just, you know, go fly to the Bahamas. He was in Hong Kong originally, right? With FTX started in Hong Kong, moved to the Bahamas, I think, last year. Um, I think, like, mid to late last year. And so um, you couldn't go to these places without doing a long quarantine. So VCs were not going doing on-sites. Nobody was going into the Bahama polycule and checking to see if they were like having proper controls from, you know, how the private keys were stored. They were just getting on Zoom calls and asking them. And they would take whatever they said as answers because like, what else are you going to do, right? You're not going to go fly there and like, you know, go join the polycule and figure out what's really happening. So the, the reality is that like VC always operates on trust. The first time people went was the SALT conference, which is like, that is also like a crazy thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> we look back at that. Yes, uh, it's been a bizarre year. The marriage of Scaramucci and, and Sam at that time seemed very counterintuitive to me, but now actually does seems like it almost is like a, a perfectly written sonnet. I mean, Sam was just so shrewd in buying access. So, you know, he he bought access in terms of the, you know, the U.S. in donating, being the second biggest donor to uh, Joe Biden's campaign, uh, being a massive donor to a bunch of, um, you know, Democratic candidates across the U.S., you know, the Miami Heat Stadium, F1 sponsorships, like all this stuff that just like brought him attention and notoriety that didn't necessarily result in, in um, uh, you know, customers, right? It, it's not clear that any of this stuff had a positive, positive ROI. And they clearly, you can see from the balance sheet, they weren't making it back in trading fees. So 
they, they didn't have the profits to show for it, but they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars onto frivolous nonsense that just increased their name, increased their ability to ultimately borrow money and leverage themselves. And, and that's what it buys you. One of the craziest like heresy rumor stories I heard, and like I have no way of validating this, so, but I think it'll be funny to share on this podcast, is um, how, how do you think you know, someone like Sam actually convinced Tom Brady or met Tom Brady to you know, invest, join, whatever? Well, he has an agent. And his agent, uh, and this is the part I can't verify, owned a tequila brand, tequila company. And supposedly, the agent was like, yo, if you buy my tequila company, I will introduce you to Tom Brady and like help make this thing happen. And they bought this tequila company for $50 million to do that. And I, I, again, I have no way of verifying this, but I've heard this from four separate people. And I was like, wow. And I heard it way before this happened. Like I heard it like in January and February. But like, I think, I think there was a lot of that. When you're talking about pay to play, it's like you're to buy the agent's external company for them to like introduce you. Kind wow. Of well, Get ready, depositors. You're gonna be. We're gonna see what that um, tequila company is worth, so uh, we can try to make you whole. Um, oh my god! Wow, if that's... my agent ever did anything like that, <laughs> there's always, there's always, there's always oh money in the tequila bottle. Is the new? There's always money in the banana stand. Oh my god! Oh my god! Okay. Well, in in, in um, one one of the things that uh, people so back in I think one of our previous shows we were talking about how Sam was buying up. Uh, all these distressed lenders. And I came out and defended him and I said, hey, you know, uh, I can't remember what I said, something like, hey, SBF is like buying stuff. Uh, or he's backstopping the industry and, you know, you should give respect where respect's due for doing that because, you know, nobody else is doing it. And people started jumping on me yesterday saying like, you know, look, you're, you're, you're saying Sam is so great. Like, look at you, you're in bed with this guy. And I was like, okay. So I, I just deleted the tweet because I'm like, okay, I, I feel stupid now for having tweeted that to begin with. But I, I feel like this. This um, I feel like Sam is just going to become like a ghost now, where everybody is kind of going through and scrubbing everything they've ever said about him. It's almost like a. It's almost like a ritual. I feel like that everybody is is being forced to do is disassociate themselves with him as far as they can. I don't want to delete the episode where we interviewed Sam because I think it's a it's an important moment in time. Although it was a terrible episode because he was in a hotel and you know the, his internet was terrible. It was really bad. But um, speaking of speaking of deleting episodes, Lex Friedman deleted his uh, I saw Will that. McCaskill episode, and I, I okay. Let's talk about okay. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. So um, so one of the one of the the key things, of course, that that uh, the media loved marketing about Sam was that he was an effective altruist. So for those of you who don't know, effective altruism is a movement of basically. I mean, I, th I think actually, Turin and I would probably disagree on the definition of effective altruism, um, but it's a movement that. Uh, is is characterized by people like uh, Will McCaskill, um, Holden Karnofsky, who's the founder of GiveWell, uh, Peter Singer, and then most most famously and most recently, Sam Bankman-Fried, um, who is probably one of the most famous names. We should also allow for the fact that Singer is a very famous philosopher for the last 50 years, and yes. he has done many other things. He just happens to be mildly associated. I would say the... Well, he, to be the clear, he runs the... No, 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 hold on. He, he runs The Life You Can Save, which is one of the largest EA charities, which sure. I, was, I was on a panel for the last two years with Sam and Caroline with Peter Singer on a panel that they ran. And I moderated it last so year. So I moderated it. So like, no, no, no. Peter Singer is an effective altruist. He is very okay. much an effective altruist. Okay. 
But, yeah. By the way, I'm not an effective altruist. And now that I've learned a little bit more about it, I'm like, uh, this, this is not for okay, me. Okay. So, but anyway, so we, we should talk about this. So now, um, so in the, in the eyes of the media, at this point, Sam became the most famous effective altruist. And of course the, the mythology around him was that he was this kind of saint like figure. He was going to donate 99% of his wealth. He had absolutely, you know, he was basically living in this crappy t-shirt, sleeping on beanbags, blah, blah, blah. You know, we just got um, driving a Corolla. driving a Toyota Corolla. You know, TikTok loved this story about this selfless billionaire guy, and then it, it was in. Um, he he was he. I think he was a board member of the Center for Effective Altruism for like three four years. The big donor to Givewell, a lot of EA charities, uh, and he started uh, what was called the FTX Future Fund. That um, they were one of the largest donors. I think they they committed over a billion dollars to donate to um, effective altruist aligned charities. Let's say, um, and then Alameda Research itself. I think they they pledged like fifty percent of their earnings annually. They were they were going to donate to charity, and so it was it was from the very beginning what animated Sam and what kind of brought him on his mission to get into crypto, actually to even become a trader. So when, the the reason why he went to Jane Street and became a trader after originally studying math at uh, at MIT was that uh, he was convinced that he wanted to earn to give. The earning to give is this concept in in uh, effective altruism, which is basically this idea that you pursue a high earning career so that you can redirect those funds into high impact charities. And the idea is that you can potentially have more impact with your giving than you can with many kinds of direct work. And this was, this was an idea that was very popular back in 2013, 2014 in the effective altruism movement. Um, and, and this was explicitly what Sam was doing. And now, of course, the, the most famous name associated with effective altruism has been very publicly disgraced, is now going to go down as one of the legendary fraudsters of our generation. And uh, basically EA, the effective altruism as a movement is now being indicted. And so you've got a lot of people writing op-eds, a lot of people dissociating themselves with the movement, the, you know, the, a lot of people looking like they have egg on their faces. And I should also say, so I'm somebody, I self-identify as an effective altruist. I've been a part of the movement since 2013. I actually knew Sam. I first met Sam at 25, in 2015, before he got into crypto, before I got into crypto, um, at an EA conference in San Francisco, back when he was still at Jane Street. Because Sam was a big EA guy, and you know everybody, everybody in sort of the EA world knew his name. I didn't know him very well. I you know, met him once in a hallway, and we chatted for a little bit, and that was it. But um, but I, I I myself am somebody who have been earning to give. I've been doing it for uh, basically seven years since I got into the tech industry. I don't donate ninety nine percent of my wealth. I donate thirty three percent. But so this is something that's very near and dear to me. Tarun, you've been very public in basically in your indictment of effective altruism as a movement, and, and you basically think that. Um, this stuff is all bullshit. I want you to to kind of voice your concerns and I want to try to ad address them and also kind of respond as best I can. I think I do have a, a, a long track record of of writing anti-EA stuff for a long time, but I, I feel like I should have been more militant after seeing this uh, last few weeks. <laughs> but I think the main conceit I find with most, of, most EA stuff is and, and sort of in general consequentialism uh, as a philosophical movement, is you always have to start with the axiom that the ends justify the means to argue that you're optimizing utility in some ways. And you're not even able to construct an explicit utility function. You just are saying like, hey, I'm going to like try to optimize this type of thing of like how I'm, do how I'm allocating my, my wealth or how I'm donating or how I'm doing whatever. And I think, first of all, there's no consensus on a utility function. Second, the idea that you say ends justifies the means means that Okay, well, then like you might as well just like kill a ton of humans to lower costs, right? Like there, there's actually this like level of inhumanity in, in the entire philosophy of this thing that it would rather pay money now 
it, it, so there's at least the long-termist part of EA. So long-termism is a dollar spent to improve the welfare of people a thousand years in the future is worth more than a dollar spent to improve the welfare of someone now. And people who have that mindset would rather sacrifice tons of people right now, the welfare of those people, their livelihoods, their ability to, to live in a, a, a meaningful manner because of this idea that, oh, I'm going to help infinitely many people in the future. There's going to be more people in the future. So like the net utility improvement for each person in the future is higher. And the conceit in that is that you, A, haven't found the discount rate, like because you have to discount some amount of success. You assume you, there exists no discount rate. That's this linear utility type of mindset. The second thing is that when you use this ends just as the means thing, you inevitably have this thing where it's like you, you run into the trolley problem style thing of like, oh, do I just like, am I willing to, to kill one person to save five? And, you know, oftentimes, you know, the utility optimizer just says yes, right? But there is this notion that, and, and like EA people, you can see in McCaskill's like really shitty apology on Twitter, which is like five, too little too late in my mind, uh, that basically, you know, oh, we've written, we've written four blog posts in our history that, that give you some way of saying that actually we have one way of getting around the ends just by the means when it comes to robbing, you know, kind of like unethical behavior. And most of that comes from the following conceited assumption, which is, Assume that all humans who are exiting this utility optimization thing are running on untrustworthy hardware. So they make mistakes. Then you can't actually make a, a, a utility judgment that affects them based on, uh, you know, like normal utility optimization. They always make this base of like, oh, if the AI did it, they can do this, but the human does it, uh, you should have some correction. And to me, that's just saying you chose the wrong fucking utility function. And that means you're you're just like oh ah uh, after I guess like after we already fucked up something I guess we're gonna like bolt on this correction, and the idea that there's this idea that you you don't face any consequences for this post hoc, ex post kind of correction to your behavior, I, I feel like that's not how most societies operate, and that's not that's not how human interaction is meant to to exist if you're if you're actually trying to have some notion of of equality or humanity, and it's very funny for a, a fucking philosophy that starts with. All pain is equal as its initial kind of dogma, you know, the Peter Singer dogma, somehow leads to this like, oh, we're just going to like not be that equal and then like bolt on all this, this type of stuff. And I, I find that stuff to be the most deleterious part about it. And it's like, I don't mind robbing grannies now because I'm going to like help the children in the future. And that, that mindset is pervasive amongst a lot of people, especially in the, what I would call the Oxford Jane Street Dustin Moskowitz part of EA. Okay, so let me let me let me let me let me try to try to respond to, to some of that. So, the first thing I'll say is that um, so I, I've been in EA or a sort of self-identified EA since like 2013, 2014. and um, back then the movement was very small. Like it was this kind of weird set of ideas that I'd read on blogs on the internet, and I agreed with them. I thought they made sense, um, and I, I thought it was a, a, a it felt to me like the right way to orient my life and my relationship with work, and with my responsibility as a human being to uh, give back and not kind of take for granted this idea that as one of the most privileged people on earth and being privileged, not just in the sense of like, okay, well, you know, I have, uh, I don't know the, the way that people usually think of privilege is like, oh, I'm male or whatever. Um, uh, but more that like I'm American, I can work here. I speak fluent English. I'm pretty intelligent. Um, that puts me in like the 1% of the world that has all these capabilities that allow me. And I have access to like some of the most incredible wealth engines in world history which is Silicon Valley. 
or just the general tech industry, which most people, even if they're smart enough, they don't get to have access to the, the jobs and the wealth that are created by it. And um, the, the, the core idea of, you know, that, that Peter Singer really originally awakened me to is this unfairness of it. And that it's your job, it is your moral responsibility, even if society doesn't tell you that it's your responsibility. It is your responsibility to do something to correct that unfairness. And now, you know, EA is a pretty loose concept and it's increasingly become more, you, you can call it a movement and you can call it a philosophy. I would say I subscribe more to the philosophy than the movement. I'm not a part of the movement in the sense that I don't go, you know, last time I went to that conference was 2015, um, which was seven years ago. I stopped going to it because I'm like, okay, this, these are kind of weird and I'm not getting a whole lot out of this uh, because I'm just working. I'm just doing stuff. I'm not going around thinking about EA all the time. It's just a, it's a, it's a life philosophy more than a culture. Now the culture of EA, um, I, I haven't been very publicly outspoken about it, but I, I've always found it um, surprisingly incompetent. So we've never, I've never funded anyone from EA. I kind of wanted to, like in my mind, I was kind of like, okay, I feel like maybe it's a good thing to fund somebody who's an EA, but every EA I've ever come across has just always struck me as either like extremely Machiavellian or very incompetent in ways that are very difficult to explain to them how they're so incompetent. And it's just striking there have been so few success cases of people who are EAs who managed to like really be very successful. Uh, Sam was kind of the one example that seemed like a real outside success in EA. And um, now that being said, like this whole idea that EAs are, are married to this like um, kind of ruthless, cold utilitarian calculus, I think is just, is just not true. Um, that may be true if you're reading the EA forum and people are arguing about these philosophical debates, but it's kind of like, you know, there's no EA, there are no EAs in a foxhole, right? In reality, you go out, you take care of your family, you like are nice people on the street, you kind of do normal things. And then when you are considering how you give and how you have kind of, you know, uh, sort of career level impact or life level impact, then I think to me, the philosophy of EA, I don't think it, 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 I don't think it commits you to utilitarianism or consequentialism, to me, what EA commits you to is this idea that people should be rigorous about the way in which they do good. And that most people are not rigorous enough. And that ironically, we are very rigorous about business. We're very rigorous about technology. We're very rigorous about statistics and about macro and about all these other things. But for somehow, the, the, the thing that's most important that we do with our lives, which is improving the well-being of others, people are incredibly unrigorous. And they appeal entirely to their emotions and how good something sounds. And they don't, they don't even att attempt to give the same level of kind of mathematical seriousness and inquiry to those questions. Now, that doesn't, again, I don't think it commits you to saying, okay, we have to spend all our money on existential risk. I don't do that. And I don't think it, it commits you to saying, okay, we have to send all our money to bed nets. In I would say the, the fact that Anthropic has $500 million from FTX is like an indictment of this, this thing, right? It's like I robbed the grannies to like, do AI safety. That's literally what they fucking did. They robbed the grannies, the pension fund people, the people whose LP capital was in this fucking place. And they gave it to this thing that was like, oh, like, we're going to save people from uh, AI that tries to kill you uh, 10,000 years in the future. Like, to me, that's morally reprehensible. There are, the, the, yes. That's just like, just like fucking stupid. And that is like the dumbest fucking thing I've ever seen. And I, I, that's why I'm in general find this like morally bankrupt theory just leads to creating psychopaths like it leads to it leads to incentivizing people to not care wait laura actually yeah sorry laura, laura, laura go ahead yeah i i actually um so like my so yes i i barely knew uh, anything about effective altruism but what i you know learned from covering sam is that you know he 
I, I maybe he took it further than you, Hasib. Like somehow when you were articulating it, it seemed like basically reasonable. But I do wonder if he took it to a sort of an extreme, right? Like I've never heard you say, you know, I just want to make as much money as possible to give as much of it away to other people, right? But like Sam, you know, maybe not using those words, I don't, I don't remember. But like I somehow got that impression from him, and so when I interviewed him. Recently, I mean, the way I phrased this was just around the political donations, but it's something that I was wondering, and you could express it in a slightly different way, which I'll get to in a moment. But I asked him, when you are making your political donations, is your motivation your EA philosophy or is it to foster crypto, the crypto industry in the US, like to, to help the crypto industry? And he basically said it was like for EA purposes. Um, and so, you know, when you have this person who is working in this field, but their values are not necessarily aligned with that industry. Like, like his guiding lights were not like around decentralization or whatever. It was really around the EA thing. It's like his attitude to this was more like, I'm going to use the crypto industry to, for this other goal. And, um, I could see how, you know, when you're thinking more in that way, it could lead you to do really crazy things like take your customer funds and use loan that to Alameda, basically. I mean, granted, you know, I don't know what was in his head, but it's just something that occurred to me because I feel like a true crypto person, you know, after living through, you know, all these exchange hacks or whatever, they would like, they would protect that stuff. They wouldn't, you know, just be cavalier with it, and you know? I don't think that's even much of a theory. I mean, they had the big ads with Sam on the front saying, I'm in crypto to do the most good for the most people, which makes no fucking sense. Like, that has nothing to do with, like, like, fucking coke from this, like, oh, the Corolla guy, like, lives in the $75 million penthouse. And, like, like that that fucking shit, like, oh, if you're really that effective at donating shit, don't live in the $75 million polycule house. Like, you know, there's, like, a lot of stuff that they spent money on that just completely violates the dogma of all this shit they're saying. Like, why would you buy the ad? That money from the ad could have bought mosquito nets, motherfucker. Like, like, that's like, that's what I'm saying. Like, you're not even listening to all the shit you're saying. You're just high on your own supply. Like, the more I thought about it, when when I was, uh, granted, like, I've never researched this. I was literally only trying to understand it for this interview with him. But I just was like, oh, weirdly, and it goes back to what Tarun was saying about the one killing the one person versus the five. I was like, oh, like if you follow that philosophy, you are going to end up in like making very weird choices that take you out of a very conventional morality. And I like there was just something where I was like, oh, like if you're thinking that way, it just like it like it, it's um it, it's hard to explain. But it's like um when somebody gets so hyper rational and they're like only thinking like in this mathematical way, it just kind of takes them out of the human sphere. And that is kind of I feel like maybe what happened here. There's actually a pretty good thread. That someone dug up about with Sam basically talking about the Kelly criterion, which is this formula that helps you think about how to size your bets based on the expected value of like a, a bet. And and basically people are now digging it up and sort of it's sort of an interesting glimpse into how he thinks. And the general sort of, you know, tell here is that he talks about his utility function being um, sort of log money, which is, you know, generally supposed to be like the max, you know, you're supposed to be getting out of uh, your utility function in the Kelly criterion. But also that therefore lets you justify basically, you know, wagering large amounts of money once you have large amounts of money for something that is not going to necessarily pay off. If like there's some chance that you're going to make a trillion dollars because it's basically the same amount of utility that you have right now. And I think that is maybe kind of what you see in like the outcome from um, FTX is like, you know, wagering larger and larger amounts because you're assuming there's some 
you know, massive payoff that's not going to be materially different than well, what you look, have here, right Well, here's now. where I take issue with this. Okay, so so one, I, I agree with you that there's something clearly, um, there, there's something clearly messed up in the kind of, the, the, the worship of asceticism around Sam, right? I think there, there was something very unhealthy about it. And it was there from the very beginning at Alameda. Because it was fake. Like a lot of it was not real. I mean, right? to be like, clear, it was it was not it was not fake, right? Like if you if you look at what they were doing from the Alameda days and what he was doing while he was at Jane Street, he was doing this in EA from the very beginning. I, I mean, from the last year, the last year, the last year was when. To be clear, in the last year, he was worth thirty billion dollars. I, I so I I don't but, I don't, I don't so like this game. I think if you're really the ascetic, if you're really an ascetic with linear utility, you should you you should you should be scaling your asceticism by not changing, not like making ads of yourself in every San Francisco. Like there's a lot of stuff that's crazy. A lot of it was enabled in my mind by McCaskill. The Twitter uh, stuff, uh, you know, when like Elon Musk's tweets uh, came out and like McCaskill was in there trying to. to McCaskill's just trying to be in the the capital formation game, not the the actual redistribution game. In the same way that Sam is, and they both, you know, reputation laundered each other. And, and in general, I think like we're we're kind of trying to be like, oh well, you know, what was true three years ago must still be applied as an invariant. But what we saw in the last year was malfeasance and malevolence. I agree. I agree. Hey, look, look, look. Here, here, well, let me let me let me finish. Let me finish. Okay. So I, I have still not totally internalized like what did EA get wrong here. And I, and I totally agree with you that clearly um, some of the folks who are at the center of the EA movement, particularly Will McCaskill, tied their fate to Sam. And they and they found him incredibly convenient at a time when there apparently, uh, so I was, I was reading about this some today uh, or last night in the um, EA forums, that there were a lot of people internally at EA who had a lot of criticisms of Sam and felt that he was a Machiavellian person, that he had, had a reputation for being very unfair and very manipulative to people, um, but they ignored it. Supposedly, this is this is what now people are saying. But again, I I don't totally trust this, just because this is the kind of thing that always happens when somebody gets kind of publicly shamed and, and bad things happen. Is that everybody comes out and says, "I knew it all along," and I always had this, you know, whatever. So these these claims get amplified in times like this. It'll be a while until we get a better accounting of who actually said what, when, and who thought what, when. So I, I don't know. I still need to process for myself if I want to distance myself from effective altruism as a cultural, as a culture, as a cultural movement, as opposed to as a philosophy, right? What any particular person does obviously does not indict a philosophy. A philosophy is a philosophy. You have to, you have to argue on the philosophy, not, not some particular person who practices it. Um, but effective altruism is not just a philosophy. It's also a movement. It's a social movement. And it's, a, it's, a, it's also an organization of people. And uh, that organization of people may have made some pretty massive mistakes. I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to it because I'm, like, you know, I'm in crypto all day. And so this is all I do. The other thing that I want to say, though, is that I, I, I really do want to take issue with this idea that it was effective altruism that caused Sam to, you know, embezzle funds or whatever the hell he did. Okay. We know why people embezzle money. They do it every, it doesn't matter whether effective altruism or not. People do it because they're scared or they're greedy. That's the answer. It has nothing to do with effective altruism. It has nothing to do with going to MIT, nothing to do with being a trader. Um, this is the oldest story in human history. We don't need to appeal to any complex philosophy or social organizations to understand why people do the shit they do when they're cornered. The answer is that Sam felt the need to bail himself out because he was scared. And that is what we need to impugn. That is, that is what we need to, that is what we need to repudiate. I think trying to mentalize and say he did it because he's an effective altruist and he was going to save the granny, blah, 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 blah. If Anthropic was not on their balance sheet, I would agree with you. The Anthropic investment is the ultimate thing that proves that. Like Anthropic is literally like EA porn company, right? I would agree with you if he made that investment to Anthropic 
with customer funds, but we don't know when any of this happened. We have no idea of the timeline. Yeah. Well, also, you know, almost $2 billion is missing apparently. So who knows where, where the uh, donation came from. But one thing I will say is like, you know, when you talk about that moment where it's either going to be greed or fear that motivates you, I mean, like he could have very well just said, okay, Alameda failed. We're going to announce this. You know, I have this other profitable business. I don't need this other business. And so I actually feel that EA did play a role in the sense that he's like, oh, well, if I make this bet and I can like, you know, earn the greatest amount for whatever, you know, like, like it's not because I feel like just like a normal entrepreneur would have kind of looked at it in a cold way and just been like, okay, this one, you know, we're just going to have to close it up. It, it just, it's, you know, in, in the red. And then, but the other one, this can be a healthy business. There are tons of exchanges that do very well. But because his goal is to just make as much money as possible to give it away, I feel like that is what made him, you know, like like I said before, it's like going back to that notion that EA is what drove his principles rather than like a crypto person. Because I feel like a crypto person. Laura, Laura, this is the most fraudulent industry I have ever seen in my life. Are you really claiming that a normal crypto person here would not like literally exchanges are the bastion of fraud of everywhere, every possible business? A more pure crypto entrepreneur, maybe then is the phrasing, you know, he does like, let's put like, but you, you admit though, if he had just done that, he could have definitely had a very successful business with FTX, right? Of course. Of, of course. Yeah. Alameda would go under, he would lose a lot of face. He would lose a lot of money, but right. FTX would still fundamentally be fine. Right. I, I, again, we don't know what happened or when it happened, but here's what, here's what I will also say. Okay. The, the the reason why this happened, like the the real like you sort of you know do the five whys, right? Like okay, why did this happen? Why why was that allowed to happen? Um, the answer should be that there should have been a fucking board and a fucking CFO that would not have allowed any of this to happen, even if Sam wanted to do it, right? At a normal company, the CEO does not have the choice. There is no okay. In a moment of crisis, you look deep inside and decide, okay, how many utils do I want to save out of you know the far future or whatever? That's not even a question that enters into most CEOs' mind because they know they can't. And that's part of the problem here with FTX. And that's, what I'm, that's why I'm pointing to the VCs and the governance here is because the fact that this was possible is the problem, right? You should not allow a, a human in a moment of fear to be able to make a decision about billions of dollars of customers' money. That's the problem. You know, I'm, all I'm saying is that since those structures weren't in place, and we all admit that the rational choice would be to say, okay, we're going to close up Alameda, but FTX, we're going to keep going with that. That's working. He didn't make that choice. And it's weird. Like, why? Why did he not do that? And the only way I can think about it is, like I said, about this kind of other philosophy of his that he said was his guiding philosophy, where he was like, if I make this bet, and I can't remember in the Sequoia article, he has something about where he talks about like risk in this way. And you could see like following, you know, that what he says in there, like, oh, yeah, like you might try to make this big bet to try to make all this money. Like, I don't know that that was my read on it, because otherwise it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's possible, right? But like the other thing is that he's a trader. And as a trader, especially as a very highly leveraged trader, clearly throughout most of his career, this was what he's this is what he did. Apparently in the early days when Alameda blew up, that's what happened is they took on a bunch of leverage and it blew up. And so like the he it's 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 not as though the idea of okay, you take on some leverage and you bail yourself out was a foreign concept to him. He's a trader. But the concept of where you get the leverage is the point of actually caring about your business, right? Your utility function should be to fucking keep your exchange alive, not not just think of it as another form of a lender, right? Like, and the problem is 
he he viewed these lenders as such idiots so much that he thought his own company was a stupid lender. And, and you know, like that's, that's the morally that reprehensible. Like, reprehensible Look, I mean, one way or another, clearly what Sam did was morally absolutely reprehensible. But I think the goal of the industry is not to like psychologize and figure out, okay, what particular idiosyncrasy of his moral beliefs led him to do this. Right. But wait, but wait, I have a question. When you say clearly it was morally reprehensible, like a, to, according to a common morality, but I'm asking under the EA, when you're making that rational equation of like, oh, if I, you know, the risk is, is this amount, but the number of people I could benefit is this amount, blah, 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 that whatever. That. Okay. So how many people do you think he benefited now, as opposed to if he had just left FTX alive and still been a multi-billionaire? Right. So the risk didn't pay off, but I'm saying when he made the calculus, maybe he thought it was going to pay off. That's the only, I like, because this whole thing is so crazy in my that. head, that's like the only way I can imagine he justified it. So here, here's what, here's what troubles me about all this is I feel like there's this exoticism about you know, because Sam was a utilitarian, that every single thing that he did was like, you know, him laying out this utilitarian calculus in his mind. I know plenty of people who are utilitarians. They don't do that. They're normal people, but they believe that that is the right moral framework when they're making, you know, kind of clear-hearted decisions about how to donate money or about how to make big kind of societal level uh, decisions, okay? Borrowing from from, from P, bar, robbing Peter to pay Paul is, is the, the same as uh, making a donation decision from the perspective of just the, the the dollars accounting and cents. No, I don't think there's anybody I know who's a utilitarian who would agree with that. When when you're making four billion dollars of loans against dog shit collateral that you minted, I think that <laughs> it's a very similar. It's a oh, very Turin, similar I, I mean, yeah, okay. So it seems like Turin, you're committed to this idea that utilitarianism co commits you to basically committing crimes if they have positive externalities. Yes. Okay. I, I, I don't think there's any utilitarian. This is, my, my, right? like, one of the main reasons I say this is all of the logic that I have seen from both McCaskill, Yudkowsky, and the EA forums involve this post hoc belief that, oh, actually, we can bolt on the ends don't always justify the means to by, by mutating when we say, like, oh, if it involves humans, maybe we treat it different than involving AI. And it's like, no shit, Sherlock. Like, that's the point of having agreed upon rules and morals and rights in the society. So there's the concept of, of, of rule utilitarians, which gets around sort of naive utilitarianism. I think naive utilitarianism, you're right, Tarun, does commit you to this idea that um, if, if, you're, if you do something wrong or de deontologically immoral, meaning you're breaking some moral law, but there's no obvious, uh, uh, like you're not found out, for doing it, or you just, you know, the positive externalities outweigh the losses. Yes, naive utilitarianism does commit you to that. Almost nobody who is a utilitarian is a naive utilitarian because it results in these weird trolley problems and all these kind of, uh, you know, these, these horrific consequences. So very few people believe that. But, but the other thing is, I don't, think you, I don't think EA commits you to being any kind of utilitarian, right? I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a utilitarian. Uh, I, I think I have some kind of weird mishmash of like virtue ethics. Sometimes I, I'm utilitarian, I think on large scales and on small scales, I think I'm just like a normal ass person and I follow the rules. And that I think is what most EAs actually look like, which is why I don't, again, you know, EA as a philosophy and EA as a movement are two very different things. And it's very clear EA as a movement has a lot of rehabilitating to do. And it may be in, unsalvageable. I don't know. Uh, I haven't spent enough time in that uh, community as of late and I don't really hang out with people who are other EAs because I just do it. I don't, I don't make it like my identity or my social circle. But the, the core ideas behind EA, I don't think, I don't believe they commit you to anything like what Sam did. 
I think what Sam did is that whether he was an EA or not, he was a fucked up guy and he had a very loose sense of morals. And I don't think it would have mattered if he'd never found EA when he was a young guy. I think he probably still would have done some fucked up thing in his life because he clearly just had a loose relationship with the truth. And if you are that kind of person, it doesn't matter what philosophy you believe, right? It's about character. It's not about philosophy. I, I, I don't think there is any philosophy that's going to make you decide to go fuck over all of your customers and lie to everybody you know and run a gigantic fraud. Like there, that, that is a really messed up philosophy to get any human being to do that. And I don't think there is any such thing out there. Yeah, but it, uh, yeah. I, I, we don't have to keep arguing this, but I think it goes back to the kind of like bet idea. Like when you have that choice, like like when you look at the outcomes, you kind of calculate a percentage chance of this or that. Like that's the only way that I can uh, imagine that this happened. But I remember the point that I wanted to make, which is that, you know, and I tweeted something like this, but I do think one of the big takeaways is that traders should not run exchanges. <laughs> like yes. the two that mindsets are just not compatible. Um, you know, like, yeah, just now that we've learned all of this, I'm like, whoa, you know, and it's what I said, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but you know, just like security should be the first and foremost thing. And I heard, I saw somebody tweet something about, and I, I could verify this, um, cause I'm going to have Jesse on the show later, but Jesse Pallet Kraken might've told somebody that one of the red flags that he saw with Sam was that, uh, or with FTX was that they'd had a very small security team, apparently, which it, that's a red flag for an exchange, which makes a lot of sense. So Brian Armstrong, you know, for all the criticism he's got, he has a completely <laughs> different personality from Sam. Uh, I don't think he's a trader. He's definitely more like a builder and coder. Um, and, you know, just other people with that kind of mindset around security and whatnot, like that's the, those are the people who should be running centralized exchanges. Yeah, I think um, we talked about this a little bit last show, but like the the Jesse's and Brian's of the world who started these companies well before anyone thought this industry would turn into anything and really believed in the ethos, believed in the promise of the technology. Um, you know, I don't think they would have done something like this because obviously it's just so harmful to the industry overall. Um, whereas you have opportunists who come in, see this as a great way to make money. And I think that does sort of cloud your judgment, maybe not explicitly, Maybe there's not a literal thought around, you know, the ends justifying the means. But I think certainly, like, you know, it, it speaks to your overall incentives. Mm. Well, so I, I want to wrap this show with just a reflection of like, okay, we're here now. This is one of the most catastrophic failures of the last five years in crypto is the, um, the downfall of FTX. And it seems like the more we learn, the worse it becomes. It's clear this is going to set the industry back. So the, the question that I want to leave with is just, what do you think happens from here? What does the next uh, six months, what does the next year look like as we recover from this? You know, I actually want to quibble with your statement. I, I don't know if I would say that it will definitely set the industry back at least um, on a long enough time scale because I actually think it's so good for the industry just like based on all the principles that, you know, I hear from crypto people around what they're trying to build and how they want to use this technology to change society. I actually think it's so good to get those kinds of people and, um, you know, those kinds of practices or whatever you want to call them, um, out and, um, have people recognize like, this is not how we do things, um, sooner rather than later. And so, you know, I understand that maybe not regulators and lawmakers will understand that right in the beginning, but I imagine that the community members will kind of double down on more decentralized things on self-custody on just like all the sort of really core principles. And so in that regard, I actually feel like this could kind of hasten 
the more pure version of crypto than kind of the way the industry was going the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I want to be optimistic here. And I agree, maybe in the long run, yeah, maybe this is a step forward. But I feel like we always say this after every exchange hack and people have been trying to push not your coins, not your keys, not your coins forever. And and humans just kind of keep doing the same thing they've always been doing. So I would like to believe that you're right, but I'm I'm also somewhat uh, maybe a little bit pessimistic. But I think it's just going to be very chilly for a while. Like this asset class just looks so toxic to a lot of people who aren't already working in it. And I think you know, people who pushed these investments at their more traditional you know, crossover funds or VC funds uh, look extremely silly now. And I don't, I think on a long enough time frame, things will heal, the technologies, new technologies will be built and you know, hopefully things will look better. But in the short term, it's just hard to see how people get excited about underwriting investments in crypto if they're not already in it. And even if they aren't in it, rethinking the strategy. Drew, what would you say? I mean, what I said on Twitter the other day, the first place that liquidated the Alameda paid back, we were DeFi protocols. And DeFi protocols, due to active participants who care about not being fucking stupid, like centralized lenders who deserve to die. You know, we spent a lot of time actually trying to understand like what risks these things, these protocols are taking and how much leverage they're actually giving people. And the fact that an actor has to go pay back the smart contract first instead of relying on, you know, sweetheart deals with their own exchange is the ultimate sign that crypto's technology is the right technology in the future. And between ZK and really succinctness related projects in Snarkland and DeFi, I still am, I actually think the death of this type of stuff is actually very good for increasing the the level of development in those technologies because people see them as necessary, not just sufficient or, or nice to have. And so to me, that's the, the big that I'll take away. Mm. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely plus one to that, Tarun. It's clear there's going to be a big regulatory backlash as a result of FTX because there were so many of the rich and famous who were caught up in this thing. This was not just some run-of-the-mill kind of off, you know, overseas random exchange that ended up stealing people's money. Um, this was something much bigger. And it makes a lot of people look stupid. And it makes a lot of people think, okay, if I couldn't trust FTX, who can I trust? That violation of trust is going to be very hard to overcome. I think we will eventually overcome it, but it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of work on behalf of not just centralized players, um, but everybody in the industry of showing that we are up to the task of creating products and creating a, a, um, an industry that people feel comfortable with. And, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, we, we talk obviously about DeFi a lot in the show and we're big believers in DeFi. Um, but for most people, DeFi is still too complex. It's still too difficult. It's still beyond the pale of what they can realistically use and stay secure uh, interacting with. And so there's a lot of work to do. And so I, what I see is that uh, the next year is likely going to be quiet. Um, you know, we're still uh, going to be funding great entrepreneurs who are working on new ideas and building new things. And I think capital will be there for folks who, who, who have genuine ideas about how to move the space forward. But I think consumers are going to be pretty gun-shy for a while. Eventually, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get past this hump because crypto, you know, crypto is resilient. Uh, it's been through many, many terrible crises before, and it'll get through this one just as it's gotten through all of them before. Um, I think institutions are going to take a step back. I, I think they are going to be a little bit 
um, traumatized by what they saw with FTX because they assumed that the work had been done that had not actually been done. They assumed that the, um, they could trust that this institution was run like a real grown-up operation when in fact it was, it was not just that the money got lost, uh, but the way in which it was lost and the level of, of fraud and, and deception, um, particularly coming from the very top, coming from Sam himself, is just so unconscionably bad that I do, I do think we, we're going to take one on the chin as an industry for this. But you know, at the end of the day, Tarun, I, I would absolutely underscore that, is that the thing about technology is that technology only ever gets better. It never gets worse. People keep finding new ways to optimize these things and make them faster, make them smoother, make them more usable. And you know, two, three years from now, this, this technology is only going to improve, regardless of whether or not um, you know, people remember FTX or they don't. Um, there will come a time, there will be a cycle after this, that there will be people who have only ever read about FTX which is kind of difficult to imagine now. But there were people like, man, you know, I, I heard about that. What was that like at the time? It must have been so crazy. When like, how did you guys not know that this big exchange and this guy who was such a big deal, they say he slept on a beanbag. Like, what is this meme I keep reading about? There will come a time when all of this will be like this ridiculous story that only oldies like us are going to remember. And uh, yeah, I look forward to that. But in the meantime, um, I think if, what, what I would say is that it's back to work. So it's back to building. It's back to focusing on the, the important things that we need to do, which is to make this technology better so that it actually can be ready so that people don't have to use, they don't have to trust individual people or individual companies the way that uh, people were forced to trust Sam. The whole point of this technology is that we don't have to trust people anymore. We don't have to trust institutions anymore. And it's not ready yet. If we were ready, we wouldn't have gotten here. Um, and so I think it, it, uh, the ball falls back to the builders um, to be able to open the door to the next stage of, of this industry. Yeah, one thing that um, I just want to add, when you were saying that people in the future won't even know this whole debacle, it just reminds me of how, I um, can't remember, it was at some point probably this summer or something, I saw people, you know, they must be new and like, they didn't really know what the Dow was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, that was, that was like just this big, it's like Mt. Gox, the Dow, and now FTX, are Terra Luna probably is all also in there but um i think if you surveyed <laughs> members of constitution dow i would guess less than 50 percent of them know right <laughs> it's funny i'm teaching a course at berkeley on web3 entrepreneurship which is very timely because we've the, the course has run through a lot of crazy stuff do you have an ethics in the section then. do you have an ethics no maybe we'll add one next time yeah we'll add one next time it's a good call it's 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 just so um it's refreshing in many ways to be interacting with students who don't know any of this stuff they don't know what the DAO is. They barely know what, you know, kind of what happened before 2020 basically is just like ancient history to them. So um, it's, uh, it's in many ways refreshing because it, it just reminds you that there will be another generation after them too that's not going to know anything that happened since 2023. And they're going to be building the stuff that goes into the next cycle, most likely. So um, anyway, yeah, this stuff, uh, this stuff continues on. It doesn't stop for anyone. So. That I think we've uh, we've hit just about two hours is I think the longest show we've ever done. Yeah, I want to check if uh, there's any additional words in the uh, letters in the wheel of fortune. <laughs> N. Yeah, he talked in New York Times and like has some very unself-aware quotes in it that make it seem like he's like, oh well, I made a mistake, whatever. So. Oh. Whoa, whoa! Do you, can, okay. you, can you share those before we wrap? Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the last line, the last few paragraphs yeah. of this New York Times article are like, yeah, I feel like pretty. Can you just read it aloud? 
People can say all the mean things they want about me online, he said. In the end, what's going to matter is to me is what I've done and what I can do. And, you, you know, like, I feel like there was no, like, I'm sorry, or I, like, here's what happened. I'm really, like, I, I made an ethical lapse. It's like, no, that's fine, whatever. Wow. Did he, did wow. he confirm that it's a hack or no? Uh, he didn't. No, absolutely not. No, he, he's, he's posting, posting them. He's, he's, he's improvising. He's figuring it out as it goes. Wow. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I feel like the lack of like moral self-awareness is, is something I associate with extreme utilitarians. And this is clearly a demonstration. Of All that. right. Well, Tarun, maybe, maybe, maybe you're more right than I originally assumed. Um, all right. Well, with that, uh, I think we're going to sign off. Thanks, everybody. 